You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Wendy Bronfein. She is co-founder at Curio Wellness. We're going to talk about the world of cannabis, what's going on specifically in Maryland, Missouri, but also kind of just the industry in general. A lot of kind of moving pieces these days, you know, states that are kind of evolving, some maturing, some not maturing, obviously kind of general economic conditions, changing things. You know, we're really in a phase of cannabis where things are kind of working themselves out and there's some big kind of uncertainties and some challenges, also some opportunities. Uh, So we're going to talk with Wendy about Really what Curio is doing, what they're focusing on, how she sees the opportunities and really where some of the big moves are being made in the market and, you know, kind of where cannabis is going in general. So with all that, Wendy, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we dive into Curio today and what's going on in the market and all the kind of the frothy stuff we've got going on in cannabis, let's get a little bit of background. How, how did you get into cannabis? Tell us about Curio. What's the backstory? Yes. So I came to cannabis from the world of television, nothing related, um, but I but I was on the marketing and branding side, which is where my home is with Curio. Cannabis in Maryland began to come on the scene as a conversation in around 2013, 2014. I saw, I was living in New York at the time. I worked in television. I saw a news clipping and I threw it over to my father and said, this looks interesting. Not really thinking I'd be here today having this discussion, but really kind of was this subtle catalyst. So my dad's background is as a healthcare CEO and entrepreneur. So he can't brings that regulated market experience to this and operational experience. I came from a marketing and branding side. And so we really kind of just started to look into the cannabis category and understanding what was going on in other states and how the operations worked and who the patient or consumer was. And what was the science behind it? Like, was there validity, particularly on the medical side for this plant? And it was a very natural process, right? Every kind of piece in our due diligence just pushed us forward. There was never like an inflection point where we said, oh, do we want to do this or not? We just never had anything that kind of stopped us along the way. Eventually, Maryland released an application. Um, We had put together a group and we applied and then were successful when they made the awards in the summer of 2016. And so that's what kind of kicked off this business. Since launching, we have held the market leader role in Maryland for the five years the program has been in existence. We have a large catalog of SKUs across the number of strains that we grow and the number of products we've produced across vapes, shoes, tablets, elixirs, topicals, 
pre-rolls, you name it, kind of it's valid in our marketplace. Um, and really, I think our success has been in bringing traditional operational best practices to the cannabis industry, putting together a really awesome team from the leadership all the way down to entry level, and then really executing against meeting the needs of our customers. So whether that's the dispensary partners we sell to, the patients that we serve, or even each other as a customer within the company. Yeah. I'm curious, when you started, was this was this, uh, you know, just a, like a great business opportunity? Was this because you wanted to see sort of change in the cannabis world? Like what were kind of the motive, driving motivations for you in terms of, you know, getting this thing off the ground? So, Michael, that's my father. I think we probably had different perspectives on it. Um, <laughs> I was coming at it from the perspective of being in a world of branding and marketing, excited around a new industry and an opportunity to build a brand and go through that kind of adventure. And then the passion around the category, right? I've always been someone who's like, you got to love what you do. And this was, I mean, in all honesty, I, you know, smoked pot for the first time in high school and did (laughs) use it from probably then on in in some form or fashion. So I was very comfortable with the product. And so Uh I knew that I could get behind promoting that product, right? Um, my father with his healthcare experience, specifically in drug distribution on an institutional and retail level, had sort of watched how that industry has evolved over time, not always to the benefit of the patient. And I think seeing how high drug costs are and then learning how effective cannabis could be for a number of conditions, particularly in that you can have your quality of life address. It may not be curative, but there is definitely quality of life improvements that often don't come with the side effects that prescription drugs can was a motivator for him to be like a new field to explore that was still serving patients the way he was used to, but really kind of through a new channel. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always curious with people coming from other industries, you know, highly successful in other industries and getting into cannabis, what were the areas that you were really able to leverage and transfer into cannabis from previous kind of professional experience? What did you think you were going to be able to transfer that didn't transfer so well? And what were the areas that you realized, like, I just don't, I think these are things I really need to kind of double down on or, or really kind of backfill in terms of knowledge or kind of understanding? Yeah. So, so it overall, like when we, if you start in like our art right at the top from a leadership perspective, in any of the disciplines that we have to address, right? So we're a licensee of cultivation, manufacturing, and dispensary, right? So we look for leaders who are kind of masters of their domain and are bringing that skill set to cannabis. So (laughs) clearly, Michael nor I had any experience in the cultivation side, right? So that was a a clear area where we need to, to one, highly educate ourselves on what what that took to do in terms of having an industrial indoor grow, but then also finding the right partner to be part of our team and lead that. And that kind of carries over to the other areas as well. I myself obviously brought a lot of that marketing, branding, PR experience. My roles previously were on with brands that were were national and national media kind of scale. So all of that TV experience I had is what I was bringing. Michael was bringing his regulatory healthcare environment experience, which has, was very leverageable in terms of being in a regulated market, dealing with government affairs, having great operational experience. I think that for everyone, I always refer to it as like, there's just 
It's like there's an alternate universe that exists in cannabis. <laughs> like sometimes things that are so easily applied, whether it might be regulatory, it might be how the consumer is used to experiencing cannabis. There's a di lots of different factors that contribute to what I'm about to say, but it's almost like what applies in the reality of all other parts of our lives and world does not always apply. Yeah. And so that's, I think, one of the hurdles that you you kind of had these weird quirks where you're like, well, what makes total sense in other places? I mean, look, honestly, the oversupply thing we're dealing with right now yeah. is a perfect example, right? In any other manufacturing kind of business, you kind of assess your demand planning, your production planning. Mm -hmm. You have some level of of safety on that plan. And, and that would apply to how you run your business. But it's perplexing why so many companies are oversupplying when the market says it can't bear what they're producing. And then there's this massive price compression. And it seems like no one's learned the lesson yet, or they're learning in a very hard way. <laughs> painful, very painful way. And tell me a little bit about how, like, what have been the sort of phases of the growth of the business? You've been at this for a while. Like, what are big inflection points as you kind of look back over the last six, seven years now? Like, how have things evolved and what were the big moves that you had to make as a business? Yeah. So we started off in um, 2016 building out a building that was about 60,000 square feet to house our cultivation and manufacturing and then had a, a separate retail location for our dispensary. Because this market to date is medical converting to adult use in the summer here in Maryland, you know, <laughs> the driver of the business is how does the patient count increase? That's kind of been our benchmark for the past five years of operation. So the milestones that we hit were really kind of uh, first in our original building, our office, the, those of us who worked on the office side, we left. And the area of the building that was our office, the manufacturing department moved through and took over that space because we needed more manufacturing space. That solution lasted about six months until we realized <laughs> we needed to move them off site. Simultaneously, yeah. because manufacturing was growing and, and it needs flour to support that, and our flour sales were very strong, we knew we needed to expand our garden as well. And so we ended up putting a 100,000 square foot addition on that original building, which we believed was going to meet our current demands and, and have the ability to grow in the future, which at the time, to be honest with you, we thought was going to be inside of medical had this massive you know, downturn of the market not occurred. Yeah. Um, in the past, you know, nine, 10 months. But those, it's kind of, you know, we refer to like these phases of the building. And so where we all started collectively in 60,000 square feet, we are now 160,000 square foot indoor grow facility. Okay. We have a 35,000 square foot CGMP certified manufacturing facility, our dispensary, and then our offices offsite. But, but in the area where we are in Baltimore County, we're all a hop, skip, and a jump from each other in terms of the actual rotations. Yeah. yeah. And uh, tell me a little bit about the um, kind of financing and capital. How did, how, I mean, these these things are not cheap to stand up and get operational. How have you sort of generally financed the operations? Where, where have you gotten capital? How have you deployed it? Yeah, so absolutely true. Capital is probably one of the biggest constraints in this. As part of my job, I do a lot of lobbying that on the state and federal level. It was extremely sad to see SAFE die the way it did at the end of the year. Because yeah. um, I think addressing the capital issues in 280E and banking are the primary drivers that the industry needs at large. And it's actually what states need to make their, particularly their social equity plans, see success, right? Because people need ways to get the money to start these businesses and be able to run them without a massive tax burden. So for us, we actually 
did an investor round right after we put in our application. So within a matter of weeks from submitting our application to Maryland in November of 2016, we had raised $30 million to support this effort should we win. So our initial launch of the company was built off of that $30 million raise. Build out of our building was about $23 million of that. The We then, when we did our expansion, that was about a $35 million, I think, investment um, that we did. And we had, we were able to secure a traditional mortgage at $26 million between two banks here in Maryland. So interesting. there are two banks to date who have taken an active and entrepreneurial role in participating in the industry. So the first is a bank that, that was called Severn is now called Shore United. They were the initial player who came in. And, and that was really at the ground level of saying, there are all these licensees who need to have bank accounts and we will follow the federal levels of compliance to be your bank. So that was a huge win right out the gate for this industry here in Maryland. As it evolved, another bank called CFG came into the fold. And so, and they've become an excellent partner here in Maryland and as well, they will be a partner for us in our expansion in Missouri. So we've been able to secure this level of, of funding from a bank, but that I think is very rare. Um, yeah, very. You know, I think the strong balance sheet that we have, the market leadership we have maintained, understanding how to get a return on and maximizing our invested capital is respected by those institutions. And that's mm-hmm. what's allowed us to have this privilege. Um, and we recognize it as a massive privilege given this industry. We are planning to do, with the launch of Missouri, we are planning to do a new investor round. But that's kind of been our pathway from, from start to today. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. Hey, what, what sort of business decisions or strategic decisions do you feel like you've made over over the years to get you into that position, to have that balance sheet, to have that reputation? Is this around products? Is it around locations? Is it marketing? Is it brand? Like what, what are the moves that you feel have been really key to your success? Well, I think, look, I think we have very strong brand awareness and we have a large portfolio of products, some of which are our own, some are licensed products from other brands. Like we have Taviar, Dixie Mary from Medicinals, we just announced Smokings. Um, mm-hmm. So our portfolio is very large in terms of our ability to serve a dispensary with a variety of options from one truck, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I really think that this balance sheet element comes into the right timing of how we've scaled and built our business, invent, investing in the scale from the start. So for example, when we built out our facility, that 60,000 square foot facility, we built out all of the grow rooms in that building. We started by only using, I think, three right at the initial launch. And then as the market grew, we just started planting in more rooms. I know that other players in the state may have been equally large buildings, but they didn't make the investment day one to start to build out that facility. So there's a lag time and the market grows and we need to then operationalize our space relative to the demands of the market. So I think that investment in scale at the beginning is part of it. The timing of how we built and grew our staff and then an overall understanding of our costs. We've used uh, um, ERP and enterprise uh, resource planning platform Mm -hmm. since the beginning. So we really have a strong sense of all of our the cost of something going in all the way till it leaves the building. So beyond the track and trace what the state provides, we're really kind of highly data-driven yeah. on our costs, on the metrics of our operations, on the yields of our plants, 
So I, that I think has been the driver of of having this success. Yeah. And so you've been medically focused and now these markets are going to be opening up adult use, rec focused. How, I'm assuming you've been kind of planning on this at some level. How How is that planning, you know, happened historically now that we kind of have some real dates and stuff in place? How is that shaking out for you? Like what, what's been the kind of impact on this uh, new part of the market to operations, to strategy? How have you been responding to it? Yeah, I, I think at the core, there's pieces that don't change for us, right? Because if our if our kind of our thesis is that this is a plan and a product that improves quality of life, mm-hmm. it's just a larger platform of people. I think we believe that, of course, there are true what I'll call adult use people, right? It is it is purely of a recreational use? Yep. There there's no reason that they're trying to address anything. Yep. But I think there's a lot of people who didn't know about the medical program, didn't want to participate in it, thought there were too many barriers, whatever it yeah. is, who are going to say, I'm anxious, I don't sleep well, I got arthritis, I got this, I got that, and are going to be prepared to walk in and have this help address their needs. From a communication standpoint, I think it opens up our ability to speak to the customer in a way that we were m- much more restricted in in medical, right? We, we had to be very clinically oriented, and we are clinically oriented, in our approach and some of the products that we create. But I think we also are honest that we know some people are not necessarily using it just for that reason. So being able to have a more fluid conversation with the consumer um, is a really great piece of this. You know, we've given that we have this market leadership, we have very high quality flour, a robust collection of strains in our portfolio. In Maryland, people are very into chasing THC and we have abundance of flour that tests well over 31%. We, I think we just had our, uh, we beat our last record with a recent harvest that tested 35% THC and 4.98% terpenes. It sold out immediately, as you yeah. might expect. So I think that hopefully the legacy of what we've built to date is going to carry over into to the adult use consumer. You know, our goal is that they're going to show up asking for us by name. Um, yeah. And the and the the quality and the safety that we apply to our process in terms of the hygienics that we tout from our facility and the stringency of our cleanliness and process in both cultivation and manufacturing kind of ensure safety of that that custody chain of custody of that product before it gets to the patient and then you've just got this really great high quality experience when you're using the product. Yeah. So, so let's talk about Missouri. So long legacy in Maryland, Missouri now, why, I guess, why go there? What's the thinking? How, what's the process been like? What are the plans? Give us some insights. Yeah. So, I mean, Missouri is definitely a state that we, we watched, you know, from afar and were interested in. Had a medical program, I think was very, we found to be similar to Maryland and it actually started after Maryland but had a much higher percentage of patient participation, which we which we really like. In the time that we were able to facilitate a deal to enter the market, it was not long before they entered the referendum process. So it's interesting that we have these two states that we really liked for the structure of their medical programs, and they're both kind of having this conversion window at the same time. I don't know who's tracking this, but if you're not, the emergency regulations for their adult use program just came mm-hmm. out, as well as the proposed rules that are going through their final review making process. I think there is room to grow there. I would say that as I look through some of those regulations, it feels like at times you're dealing with a population 
of a state who said they want something and a regulator who's like, I don't know if I really like it, so I'm going to constrain this a little bit. Um, But, you know, we see that everywhere. I went to Colorado in the summer of 2014 to do due diligence for this. And someone said it will always cost more. It will always take longer and it will always start out more regulated and and kind of winnow down over time. And that those statements have held every day since. (laughs) So um, so I think that I think that there's while there's stuff in there that's not ideal that, you know, you'd like to see be a little bit different. I, I would hope that in time and practice, we'll see those regulations kind of clean themselves up because the fears that come with the the freeness of that program maybe aren't realized. And yeah. and so, um, you know, that they kind of break down on some of these uh, strongholds of regulations that are around you. But for, for the most part, I think it looks like it's in a pretty good place. And, and the speed at which they've moved is commendable. Yeah. And talk to me a little bit about expansion. I know you guys are working on franchising and you've got some funds behind this. How has that come about? Why that strategy? How have you kind of set that up for success? Yeah. So in probably within the first kind of from a reference point, Maryland became operational in December 2017. So I would say in the 18 months that followed the conversation around the increase in diverse participation in the industry really just started to push forward. And we're very much doers as an organization. And so when we put our heads around this, we thought, you know, well, the real issue here is capital, right? How do you People need to have money to be able to start these businesses. And so and then simultaneously, we had a dispensary model that we call wellness center that was performing well. And we thought, well, instead of, you know, we like we are all about the experience that we're creating for a patient or customer and the brand that we'd like to proliferate. But owning it is not the most important piece of this puzzle. It's ensuring that the right environment for somebody who wants to purchase and experience cannabis is out there. So we said, well, what if we franchise this business model, which means that anyone who's thinking about coming here can kind of get the business in a box, right? You don't have to fit. You have to be entrepreneurial in in nature, but you don't have to figure it all out. And there is a lot to figure out in this (laughs) industry. Yeah. And so it felt like, well, that could increase your chances of success because you've gotten you have a proven model that you need to execute against and be, you know, an extroverted community oriented person who can lead a great team but you don't have to solve every problem in being an operator. And then the second piece was, well, the capital. And so that's when we raised this private equity fund that's essentially a captive financing vehicle for the franchise. So for franchisees who come to us, and we've had over 900 applicants to date, most of which are seeking the support of the fund as well, the fund can provide up to 93% of the startup capital that you need to open one of these franchises. And then as you operate the store, you're paid a salary, um, so you obviously have a livable income. And yeah. then your profits from the store pay down the loan from the fund, and ultimately you buy out the loan, and you've just, you know, you have that 100% ownership. But the entire time, this individual maintains the majority ownership. So the ideal is that it's a 60% ownership by the franchisee and a 40% ownership by the fund that has given you this loan until you buy them out. And the buyout has to happen in as early as three years or as many as seven. So it's really just kind of that Kickstarter to creating capital at traditional and favorable terms that really just accelerate someone's ability to be an operator. Yeah. And what have you noticed in terms of, I mean, you mentioned someone who is sort of entrepreneurial in nature, but what are the things you 
really look for or you'll find are successful in, you know, a franchisee in terms of, you know, what they need to really make this work and what do they not need? So, I mean, I think part of it is definitely that I wouldn't take it. I, I wouldn't want to take this word too far, but there's an extroverted element, right? Because uh-huh. you are the owner operator of this business. You have to lead the team. We're looking for someone to be the face of the community, you know, in an idealistic way. If if a patient comes into you and says, well, you sponsor my kids, whatever team, you're that kind of community player who says yes, right? So we want someone who who is a, a proud face in the community. You've got to be somebody who can lead a team, right? A store has um, you know, probably upwards of 20 plus people working there. You've got to be yep, able yep. to effectively lead that team. And you have to have clearly strong ethics and compliance because we're in a highly regulated industry and there are elements of the of the franchise that are just part of the brand in our operations to follow. And then there are regulatory pieces that your entire license and business relies on. So yep. those are kind of the key pieces. When we were originally thinking about this, we actually had a lot of what we had in mind. And this really kind of came from Michael because his past life was on that pharma distribution world and retail pharmacy was yep. thinking about potentially an, an alternative outlet for pharmacists um, because that model had changed so much. Right. When so many decades ago, it was very common to be a pharmacist and to own your own pharmacy and have this business. And now you just have so many more conglomerates that most people are working inside of a CVS, a Walgreens, wherever, you know. Um, And so was this a new pathway for people of that profession to kind of go back to that locally owned shop feel, but then bring their expertise over to a new category? But really, it is open to anyone that has the right skill set to effectively run the store that is a hybrid of a regulated, a regulated space, a healthcare space and a retail space. Yeah. So I guess as you look at the broader market, I mean, you've, you've been focusing on Maryland, Missouri, you know, these are specific states that have a particular kind of framework, both legally and historically in terms of how the markets develop there. You know, lots of different states have different kind of approaches and structures. Any other states that you are kind of watching or that you're interested in or or, or you're not so interested in, in terms of how things are playing out? Give us a sense of your kind of broader view of the national market. And I, I think that, I mean, forgive me, I just let me say that I am completely aware of the geographical makeup of the United States when I say this, but I think we kind of loosely <laughs> use it as like, say, east of the Mississippi. Now, of course, I think, you know, there are some states that kind of border that. Michigan is is a, is a state I would reference and things like that. But I, it just really kind of gives you that perspective of not really West, right? That that those markets have been over licensed. They have, you know, illicit market issues that, that prevail. And so I think what we see on the East Coast in much more limited licensed markets, newer markets are places that we have our eye on. There's about 11 states that are targets for that foreign daughter franchise. The franchisees that we have announced so far are in Mississippi, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. And then for Curio itself, we keep an eye on Ohio, on Pennsylvania, on New Jersey, and kind of other other states on this side. We've always liked Florida, but Florida really doesn't. Every time we we hear the rumors that they're going to you know <laughs> add licenses, nothing comes to pass. So, um, but but that's definitely a place that we watch. Yeah, yeah. Any other big things that you're kind of, I guess, strategically planning for? Or I mean, you know, obviously everyone's kind of hoping at some point we'll get some kind of federal legalization or at least change in some of the uh, regulation around it. Are there particular things that you're kind of pinning moves around and kind of watching in terms of what might happen when? 
So as a company, you know, we aspire to a U.S. IPO. <laughs> so there's sort of there are internal things that we're doing to prepare ourselves for that. But at simultaneously, it obviously requires massive federal shifts. So that's where kind of part of my job gets into that that federal conversation and the lobbying. And and I think we feel strongly that the three pieces that really change the playing field here for future operators and current operators are banking, capital markets, and chewing. Yeah. You know, I'm sure everyone on this podcast listening is probably familiar with the chewing piece, but you know, if if there's no if there's no free cash flow to reinvest, you know, yeah. these bill these businesses are highly stifled. And then, you know, when you have certain types of licenses that are so plant touching that there's virtually nothing that they can deduct, it yeah. makes it very hard to have profits and to create generational wealth. And I think on the state level, that's the goal, right? They, every time a state is incre- is increasing licenses and programs, they're looking to create new opportunities for generational wealth, particularly for diverse candidates. But like until yeah, these yeah. three pieces, until you can safely put your money in a bank, you can have someone lend you money freely like any other business and you are not heavily taxed. Like it's just we're, we are not on an equal playing field to the rest of the U.S. economy. Yeah. Wendy, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about Curia Wellness, what's the best way to get that information? So curiawellness.com is our website. Bardaughter.com is the franchise, the wellness center and the franchise and fund website. And I am on LinkedIn, Wendy Braunfein. I will share that for anyone who is wondering what in the world Far Daughter is, um, that's <laughs> actually Swedish for father and daughter. And that's a nod to our roots of as a family founded and operated company. It is my dad and I. It's also my sister and brother as well. Awesome. I'll make sure all that information is in the show notes so people can click through and get that. Wendy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.